What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. This is Totally 80s, the podcast dedicated to the music of the greatest decade ever. So turn up your Walkman, loosen that scrunchie, and get ready to talk 80s with your host, Lindsay Parker. Hi, I'm Lindsay Parker from Yahoo Entertainment and Sirius XM Volume, and welcome to another episode of Totally 80s. Since we're all at home, why not take a second to follow us at Totally 80s on Facebook and Instagram, or email us your comments and show ideas at podcast at totally80s.com. You can also check us out on video if you'd like to see our lovely faces as well on our Totally 80s YouTube channel, so check that out if you're so inclined. So, of course, joining us today, as always, is my partner in all things 80s, the other John Hughes. Hey, I've been spending the time between episodes brushing up on my divas. There were a lot of divas in the 80s. The 80s were a good time for the ladies. Right? That that rhymes. (laughs) We We should have someone on to talk about it with us. You think? I know just the person today returning because we talked about divas so much last time that we ran out of time is our special guest coming back for part two, a celebrating musician, DJ, and humanitarian whose new album, Fun City, hit number one on the UK dance chart, along with number three on the UK independent album chart. He's open for Elton John, Erasure, Ellie Goulding, and Cher. I buried the lead there. He's opened, he's toured with Cher. And the new album, Fun City, features guest appearances from Jake Shears of Scissor Sisters, Andy Bell from Erasure, Nikki Harris and Don DeLore, who were the backup singers for one of the biggest divas of all time, Madonna. So, of course, this makes this guy perfect for the topic. In real life, he goes by the name of Rod Thomas, but we know him better as Bright Light, Bright Light, and we're happy to welcome him back to Totally 80s. Hello, and here I am with my Madonna little tea coaster that I've just put my uh, my little bug down ready for today's session. Awesome. But we should really talk about Janet because, my, yeah. uh, you know, I mean, her influence that you, you see it today, you see it on, in Beyonce, you see it in Rihanna, you see it in pretty much every female pop or R&B artist today. So let's let's talk about her transition because she started off like, you know, obviously she was Michael Jackson's little sister and she was mm-hmm. on like good times and fame. And I'm going to, when Dream Street came out, I wasn't like, here's an icon for the ages. No, Dream Street is not a star album. Um <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, it's funny. It's Jimmy just, Jam and Jerry Lewis got their uh, got the template started uh, with Janet on, of all things, that Human League album crashed. That was a dry run for Control, and I know that's a wild statement to say. How so? Cracked, or are you just like saying I'm, it sounded similar? It, it's it was eighty five, right before they went and did Control. It was Jam and Lewis saying, hey, you know, we're known for this R&B thing with Prince and the time. We want to be crossover producers. And so they picked, I think, possibly the whitest group out there <laughs> to prove their point. The least funky. Uh, well, whitest- I would say the two women were divas in their own way. The oh, yeah, <laughs> they were. They, the you're not going to find a bigger human league fan than me. Crash with Stan, notwithstanding. 
but you have weird songs like uh, uh, Love Is All That Matters. If you listen to that song, that's a Janet Jackson song. It's completely a Janet Jackson song. It's completely... Which Janet song is it? Um... It's it's basically like all of the Janet album, much more so the Control, I think, actually. Yeah, um, and you hear it, and you're like, you, you hear it in retrospect, and you're like, oh, this is where it actually kind of started. It's a wild statement. I'm putting it out there. Mm-hmm. When I think about her evolution, because um, I mean, when she first came out with Control and and then Rhythm Nation after that, since we're focusing on her '80s output. Um, I mean, Michael Jackson was still, like, the biggest star on the planet. I mean, the fact that she got to be as big a star as, literally, for a while, as big a star as he was, yeah. it's, like, an against-all-odds kind of yeah. thing. It, I think her career is, like, absolutely astounding. You know, the artistry with Control is just wild to me. Like, the first time that I listened to it start to finish, which admittedly wasn't that long ago, it was maybe, like, 15 years ago, 12 years ago, something like that, I couldn't really cope with how unskippable it is. It's such a strong record. The songwriting is so strong. The production is just like divine. The lyrics are awesome. Like everything about it is so cool. You know, it's way cooler than anything Michael did in my eyes. And then you go from that to Rhythm Nation, which is just like mind blowingly aware of everything happening very tastefully done. Obviously, it's not all about social justice. I mean, Escapade, come on. But like, mm-hmm. you know, the production on that is amazing. The, the melodies are incredible. The harmonies are incredible. The production on the vocals is just wild. Like the, those two back to back and then the third of Janet and then the Velvet Rope, like four albums where you're literally just like, oh my God, you have just like taken over the whole world. Like you're like the We're empress on- of music. To your unskippable point, you have to remember, I think Control had six singles, and I yeah. think the Nation had seven. Yeah. So Do you know that a horrible <laughs> fact? Nothing on Rhythm Nation was a top ten single in the UK. What? what? Most wow. of the songs weren't even top twenty. Crazy. The biggest the biggest single was Black Cat, which got to number fifteen, <laughs> which is absolutely like shocking to me like i don't understand what happened with that album campaign but they effed it up in the uk it was a mess poor wow. janet yeah poor yeah. janet is right i'm sorry totally. when, when well that's the least of her worries when that whole super bowl thing happened it i could get very angry if i talk about it but it's just it was such bullshit who, yeah. Because Justin Timberlake, and I'm a fan of Justin Timberlake, I don't have a problem with Justin Timberlake, but he walked away from that quote-unquote scandal unscathed, yeah. unscathed. He won a Grammy two days later while Janet was disinvited to the Grammys. And he never, I mean, actually, I do have a problem with Justin Timberlake because he never stood up for her. He no. never actually just came out and said, like, hey, like, we were both involved in this. I don't, you know, and there's still a lot of speculation to this day as to, whether that was planned, I believe it was planned, or whether it was really a wardrobe malfunction. Yeah, I believe what probably happened was they wanted to do a racy thing where they ripped the thing off her chest, and maybe more of it came off than was supposed to, or mm-hmm. you know whatever. And then people reacted as they did. Um, but the fact that he was not penalized for that anyway, his career went from strength to strength afterwards, while her career really got derailed. It's been great to see her 
sort of coming up again as an artist and selling out the Hollywood Bowl and stuff. But when J when Justin played his incredibly boring Super Bowl performance two years ago, he should have brought her back. Yes, yeah. he should have. I'm gonna just say that everybody that allowed that to happen to Janet Jackson and derail her career should go to jail. Like, <laughs> they, you deserve jail. How dare you disrespect somebody like Janet Jackson in that way and not come to her aid and defense in light of whatever might or might not have been intended to happen. Like, go to jail and <laughs> never, ever come out. And it's minor in the grand scheme of things, and I know it's not 80s, but it also derailed what I think is one of her best singles ever, Feedback, which is- Yeah, feedback. that was a great song. It's nice to see in the current climate that people are starting to like rally around her more. She got into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame last year, which was great. Mm -hmm. So she's obviously an icon and a diva, but someone else who I think ties into the whole girl next door thing that was part of her appeal definitely ties into the fact that some people consider a criteria for being a diva, being that you are an amazing singer. And someone who didn't get always get respect is Whitney Houston. So we, we, we mentioned her a little bit, you know, the, for me, there were sort of two like archetypes of divas in the 80s. There were like the Kylie's and the Madonna's who were more like these pop, you know, flashy pop princesses. And then there were like the Whitney's and then later the Mariah's and the Celine's who were all of, and they probably are like the people that like someone like a Christina Aguilera would mo or an Adele would model themselves afterwards all about the voice. But let's talk about um, Whitney because I actually, I know she's known for her ballads and like, uh, her cover of uh, another diva, Dolly Parton's "I Will mm -hmm. Love You" is one of the biggest singles of all time. But I like her, I like her uh, her dance jams. My favorite song by her is "How Will I Know." I like the dance jams. My favorites of Whitney, uh, I think this is '90s though. Um, I'm your baby tonight. That's '90s, isn't it? Maybe just yeah, just touching the '90s. Um, Love will save the day. Fantastic, you know. I loved her upbeat. So emotional. I think is like a truly incredible song. <clears throat> I believe that's '90s as well. She she really has a voice that nothing was really like that. It's so powerful and so soulful. Like it's a really unique voice in music. I think. And while people easily write it off as akin to you know, like the Mariah or whatever, like Mariah and Whitney's voices are like worlds apart and they're both like nuclear bombs, but they are completely different. Whitney didn't sound like anybody to me that had had that ability to do big pop ballads and big pop dance floor numbers. Mm -hmm. I don't know anybody that has done it with that much ease before. Um, and, you know, it was really hard not to love her and just like look at her and just see like, the joy from her face in like the the eighties, you know, there was definitely a lot of cocaine on the album cover photos. But like, <laughs> she was such she's such an icon. She's like one of the icons, icons. Mm -hmm. And I, anytime people don't know her catalog, I'm I'm truly shocked by that because all of the songs were hits. Really, even like you know, Million Dollar Bill, which is in that ill-fated, really sad last album. But that's an amazing performance, even with all the gravel on her voice and like all the damage that she'd done. It's still an incredible performance from like really one of the best artists that the world I think has ever seen. There was an interview uh, years ago, like in the early nineties in the advocate with Courtney love. And one quote that stays with me that I love is that she's like, why aren't I a gay icon? I got a drug problem. I'm tragic. What's going on. 
And I can't help but think of Whitney Houston. Okay. Because for all the things that we think of when we think of a diva, Liza, uh, you know, all these people, uh, Judy, these people that have tragic backgrounds, they're, they're, that's what kind of like ties into, I know it's weird to say, it ties into the whole definition of the thing. And, and I think it overshadows a lot of Whitney's artistry and a lot of what mm-hmm. she did, sadly, because, yeah. uh, you know, you, you can say what you want about the first really Clive Davis heavy album with all the ballads and everything. But as she went along and she started asserting herself, the music got funkier. I mean, funky and Whitney are two words that really don't go when you watch mm-hmm. the videos. But if you listen to them. No, they do. Actually, that was that was what I was about to ask was, so obviously, sadly, she died. And as you mentioned, Rod, her voice was getting the gravel in it. She had lost a lot of that iconic, you know, American Idol prototype power to it. But I'm curious where you guys think her career would have been if if she had lived. Like, you know, maybe she couldn't sing the way she did. But I feel like she would have, I feel she had it in her to do like a kind of like, Billie Holiday style, like heartbreaking, like album where, you know, like a Marianne Faithful thing where she's got this like raspier voice that's not, you know, the big power voice it used to be. But I felt the voice she she had towards the end of her life could have lent itself to some pretty like poignant work. Yeah, it could have been amazing to hear her on some like smokier tracks where she like relaxed into some of the music she listened to growing up, perhaps like maybe not so much like the gospel church songs but like the gospel influenced soul and r&b mm-hmm. that like was really popular in like late 70s and early 80s she could have done a super cool like like a france jolie record which was like funky but would have been throwback then at the time and very much like on the up she could have done something awesome like that and like the tone that she did acquire even though she lost a lot of the signature tone there was something you know very striking about it because it told a story and it really told everything that she'd been through and so it's definitely like a different reality where that redemption arc came and she got to do something with that um it's very sad that she didn't and that it was such an unceremonious end to a very um majestic diva it that's one of the saddest things in in the music industry to me like her demise is is really a failure of the, the music industry and all and those I, people should be in jail too. <laughs> yeah, not to go into too much of a downer thing, but I will just put it out there. The fact that they had the Grammy party that night, the Clive Davis party that night, they didn't cancel it. I know. She was still upstairs. Her body was still upstairs. They still went yeah. on with the party is bullshit. But it's interesting as we were talking about sort of how Janet Jackson had this, it's like a behind the music episode. Janet Jackson had this fall from grace, but then, you know, her career took, you know, uh, an upswing in terms of respect. Whitney Houston um, probably would have had that if if she'd yes. been able to continue on. But like we're talking about that girl next door thing, and do you think when it comes to people like Whitney, like Paula, even for a degree, because Paula Abdul like went through her period where we found out that she'd had you know issues with addiction or or mental health issues, whatever. Like people like Whitney and Paula and Janet, who start off as this kind of like wholesome image that when they start to show cracks in that and show human failings, like the public and the music industry, it's not super forgiving to them. No, the entertainment industry has an awful lot to answer for, for how it handles people's mental health struggles, addiction struggles, which are largely imposed by the industry themselves. Um, 
it's really shocking the way that they just let people disappear into the abyss. Um, I think like figures like that, you know, had such a rough ride. And the minute that they, like Mariah Carey as well, the minute she had mental health issues or any kind of depression, they become a laughing stock. And it's, it's really disgusting, like how disgusting it is that people thought it was okay to ridicule these poor women who have been worked every hour of every day and told that by men that they had to do things that they weren't interested in, had their ideas rejected by men that they weren't in, that they, you know, that were amazing. They, Paul Abdul had already proved that she could choreograph like the shit out of anything. You could give her a pencil and she'd make it dance. <laughs> and then she had to listen to these like basic people tell her that she still wasn't good enough. Like that would drive you to your grave. And unfortunately, it did drive Whitney to her grave. You know, there was nobody looking out for her and nobody came to her aid. Yeah. And it's it's really it's really awful. It's really, really awful. She she and Paula were both different types of girl next door, I think. Paula, they had the sweet look and they had the, the homely appeal and the, the family appeal. And then Paula had that like the, the choreography, like absolute like needlepoint precision Whitney had the vocal needlepoint precision Whitney couldn't dance Paula couldn't sing in the way that Whitney could so they both had they they weren't like triple threats in the way that people are scared of so there was like a little humanization of them which made them I think a bit more um like palatable to people who are very affronted by like complete powerhouse um, performers, you know, like, which is kind of Madonna's strength. It's like yeah. her voice, her voice isn't initially like a, a superstar's voice, but when you think of how she uses it, that's what a superstar voice is. Yeah. Um, a lot of, a lot of these people kind of tricked people with like that false sense of like, Oh, I'm just like you, but I'm really not, you know? <laughs> well, let's talk, um, taking it sort of back to the basicness though, keeping on, on the backlash that can happen. But like the fact that you were talking about like basic bros, tend to go for these uh, girl next door types and, you know, hetero bros. And we're going to talk about a lot of uh, women now, because there's still so many more to cover that definitely were threatening and not basic. And uh, probably their main audience was not hetero men, at least mm. it was, it was women like myself or was uh, the LGBTQ plus audience. But like, we haven't even talked about Annie Lennox. Yet. I was just hoping you were going to say Annie Lennox. Yes. <laughs> I was yeah. either going to be Annie or I was hoping it was going to be Susie, but we can get to Susie. We can get to Susie. We'll just keep going. But Annie Lennox is such a big one for me. It's interesting yeah. to me that I spent the like, 80s, like I basically spent the 80s lusting after boys who look like girls and worshiping women who had a lot of, I guess, what you could call masculine energy. Like when I first saw her, in the suit, in the Sweet Dreams video, and the butched off hair, but the beautiful made up face. And then I saw her like wearing all the different wigs in the Love is a Stranger video and dressing up like Elvis at the Grand. I mean, I was entranced. And then talk about a voice. I mean, she actually has an album called Diva. So, like, I, we should have probably yes. started talking about her sooner. <laughs> but I would love to get your thoughts, both of your guys' thoughts on the importance of Annie Lennox, both with the Eurythmics and even though it's a little more into the 90s, her solo stuff. Think, think about how dark and sinister those first two singles are. Sweet Dreams mm -hmm. and Love is a Stranger. If you, you know, you hear them now, you've heard them a million times, especially Sweet Dreams, you know. But 
it was scary crap back then. And hey, dude, my favorite song by you the mix is Sex Crime from the 1984. Right. But you mentioned the video for Love is a Stranger. Do you know there was a huge debate whether that was her in the video or not, if it was the same person, because she looked so wildly different with a wig on to people. Interesting. That it was like, no, I didn't. Yeah, are they a trio? What's going on? So, I do remember yeah. people being like, oh, now she's pretty. Oh, now she's hot because her hair is long. And I'm like, okay. But how like, does song, like Love is a Stranger. That was their second single, right? How does that make well, the top 40? I love in, it. In the US, potentially yeah. their second single. In the right. UK, they'd had uh, four singles prior to that. And then Love is a Stranger was the fifth, which was then re released as your second single. So yeah, okay. Sweet Dream Sweet Dreams is the first US single, I believe. Plus you guys had the whole Taurus thing as well, yeah. which we completely missed out on. Well, so. we, we did, but that that wasn't a hit. Well, I'm curious, Rod, what your favorite era of either Eurythmics or Annie is, because when we talk about people that are shapeshifters like Madonna being or Janet, it's like, you know, they started off the Eurythmics, that is, as this like synth pop kind of um, you know post-punky almost gothic duo like as john said very like very dark and it was very synthy and clinical and then they went down this whole you know soulful route and they were doing you know sisters are doing it for themselves with annie lennon uh, with sorry with aretha franklin and like you know there was uh the whole uh, be yourself tonight era was very like motowny and bluesy and soulful and and Annie sang the crap out of all of it, and all of it was a hit here in the U.S. So, like, it was, and then her solo stuff went in a, a different, more, yeah, kind of like pop, you know, direction. So, like, what's your favorite era of Annie? My favorite, the first time I really paid attention to them, I think. I mean, bearing in mind, I was born in like 1982, so I remember hearing "There Must Be an Angel" playing with my heart on this cassette that my parents had in their house. That was my favorite song for a while. Now that I've grown up and I've listened to their catalogue, my favourite album of theirs is Savage. Um, I think that's an incredible album start to finish. It's just so cool. And like, You've Placed a Chill on My Heart is just, oh, just like spine crushing. It's such an amazing, amazing record. All of the singles from 1982 up until her solo stuff, you know, they're all so strong. They're so cool. Um, she's a humanitarian. I mean, my yeah, God. she's she's amazing. I I do love Diva. Diva would be like my favorite record of any of their collection. My favorite track would be um, No More I Love Yous, which she didn't write, and I can't believe she didn't write that song because her vocal delivery on that song might be the best human vocal performance of all time. I I truly think like how. It's perfect. It's absolutely perfect. Every time I listen to it, it really makes me cry. And I, I can't understand how she performed it in that way because it's flawless. Backing vocals, lead vocals. It's, I think it's the greatest achievement of, of humankind, her vocal performance on that song. It's, re it's really <laughs> outstanding. Wow. Um, but that's 90s. So. It's yeah. Good. If it's the greatest achievement vocally of all time, I feel we need to mention it. So it's fine. We'll we'll cut you some slack. It's just so good. And you know, it's her and she was being really weird at that time. Like she did these absolutely wild videos for that album. Do you remember? Like where she mm -hmm. was with all these like men in ballet costumes and she had <laughs> Mickey Mouse hat on in for like the Waiting in Vain song, which I loved as well. And um, just refusing to do another album of originals, just wild for your second album. Like, no, I can't be bothered. I'm just gonna reinvent all of these these other songs. Like, and 
a bizarre Crazy. choice, you know, a, 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 a scraping the bottom of the chart hit for a one hit wonder called The Lover Speaks, you know. Really? Who, yeah, No More I Loves You, Love yeah. You is a song by a band called The Lover Speaks. Not a hit at all. Number 58 or so here. And to pluck that out of obscurity and give those guys a paycheck, I mean, yeah. what, what a it's wild, wonderful choice. And yeah. it's so funny you mentioned Savage because. I love the cold, detached, clinical eurythmics of the first album. And Savage was, despite you, a place to chill on my heart, kind of a return to that with I, I Love to Listen to Beethoven. Oh, yeah. oh my God, that's that that crazy. That was the first single off that. That was the lead yeah. single. And it's completely yeah. bonkers. And the yeah. video where she's like the weird housewife, shut-in housewife yeah. or something, it's like completely bonkers. And I like, think I just, yeah, I love that song, that album, I think, because it's just all the wigography. Like, she just goes, <laughs> it's like somebody's been like, Annie, you have like a million dollars. What do you want to buy? And she's like, wigs. <laughs> and then there's just like the fashions and the wigs and the interiors. It's like, it's like she's brought all of my favorite 80s and late 70s Italian horror movies to life. You know, <laughs> where it's all it is, is a woman in a wig, in fashions, in a gorgeous interior. No plot, no structure, no timeline. It's just like, Go for it, and then she's and, like Beethoven. <laughs> and you have you have Beethoven as the first single, which you know who thought that was going to be a hit here. I don't know what they were thinking. RC. Was it a hit here? It was not, no, right? Yeah, I didn't art, think it was. But I want a man was actually the second oh, single. Man. That's the one song people know. Um, Shame was the second single in the UK. Uh, US, it was um, I need a man. As oh. I say, it's I need a man, and uh, it flopped. But yeah, but going forward, it's a song people know from them. Oh, I know it. Yeah, it's been used and people forget it. It's kind of like I Melt With You, you know, it peaked at number yeah, seven. Yeah, 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 yeah. I, I do <laughs> want to point out that I earlier said when we were laying down the template, the, the framework for what a diva is, and I said it should be someone who has at least one song that could be iconically lip synced by drag queens. I feel wigs. They have to have some wigography, as you say. Yes. Like some Cher. wigography has to be shares. You know, Madonna, um, Cindy Lauper, um, Whitney, I suppose, you know, had like different hairstyles. Janet has definitely used a wig or two. You know, yeah, then okay. in the 90s, it would be something like Tony Braxton, which my friend Del from Scissor Sisters said that's how he learned about weaves, was the <laughs> Unbreak My Heart video. Um, and yeah, Annie Lennox is like the queen of wigs. Before 100%. we before we move on to the many other divas we have to talk, I do want to point out that the Eurythmics did lose the Best New Artist Grammy in '84. They lost it to Culture Club. In retrospect, I think probably Eurythmics had the more credible appeal for the long run and definitely the longer career. Um, but it, especially since you know what Annie did afterwards. But I can understand why Culture Club. For a, a moment in time, I mean. Culture and I Club, love Culture Club. Yeah, Culture Club were a, an explosion at that period of time. Like, there's, it's no surprise to me that they lost out to them. It, it was basically a two-artist race, though. It was between Culture Club and Eurythmics because the other artists were Musical Youth, Men Without Hats, and Big Country. So, like, it was going to go. So, it was basically Annie versus George that year. But, you know, thanks again today to our special guest, Rod Thomas, a.k.a. Bright Light. Bright Light, I... Can we extend an invitation for you to join us? All right. That's a, oh, this is definitely yes. <laughs> awesome. We'll see you then. I'm Lindsay Parker. I've been joined today by the other John Hughes. And we want to thank you for listening. Remember to give us a rate and review on your favorite podcast platform. And we'll catch you next time. This was Totally 80s, the podcast dedicated to the music of the greatest decade ever. 
Don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Totally80s. And please leave us a review on your favorite podcast platform. Until our next episode, catch you on the flip side. Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on AutoTrader. Just you wait. AutoTrader.